0: G'day friends and welcome to our first 6 p.m. church podcast. My name is Pete Stacey and I'm the evening pastor here at Shell Harbour City Anglican Church. We're online because of coronavirus. On Thursday we had our first connect group together using the Zoom app. Then on Friday Cross Life Kids and Cross Life Youth had brand new online gatherings. The youth were looking at James chapter 4 and verse 8 literally says wash your hands you sinners. We had to laugh, hygiene basics for COVID-19. Anyway, here we are tonight. We're continuing our journey through the little book of Titus. And Mark Greave is speaking from chapter two on having power to change. And it's a great topic for us because so much in our world has changed in the last few weeks. But there are those things that never change. The gospel has not changed. God's faithfulness and love towards us has not changed. As we move forward in these challenging times, let's continue to love Jesus. Let's continue to grow together and find creative ways of connecting with each other. Let's continue speaking the good news, the news of certainty, even in such uncertain times. And friends, let's look for all kinds of ways to be supporting others at this time. In Romans 12, from verse 10, we read these words. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We certainly need God's help with these things. So I'm going to pray for us and then Elva will lead us all in prayer together. Following that, Murray's going to read the Bible for us, have your own Bible ready to follow on, and then Mark Grieve is going to share a message. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you that no matter what happens in the world, there is nothing that is beyond your knowledge or beyond your control. Please be with us now as we share this time together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Elva is now going to continue leading us in prayer. Thanks, Elva.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, may our humble approach coming before your throne please you. May we acknowledge that we are sinners and accept the precious gift that Christ gives, a relationship with him. This week, Lord, we pray specifically for Linda Peel, Veronica Presland, Jude and Dylan Ratcliffe, and Eve and Larry Rees. Our prayer is this that they may embody the character of Christ in all areas of life. May they be pure, just as you are pure, and holy, just as you are holy. Crown them with understanding, guide them in knowledge, help them to walk steadfast in your ways, holding on to the promises you have for them, trusting that you are good. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we long for heaven to be filled, but before that time, grow our faith, hope, love, and knowledge of you, the one who saves, so that we may grow in unity as a church and so that others may wonder and come to know what we have in Christ. Thank you that you know our prayers before we even speak them. We pray for our mission partners Terry Legg and Russ Harmon in the Surf Life Saving Chaplaincy. We pray for those they pray for, that the spirit of truth will flow into their lives and guide them to salvation in Jesus Christ, their Savior. Help Terry and Russ also in the unique challenges they face and give them courage and boldness to be your witnesses wherever they go. Lord, thank you that you know our needs, our need to be in safe, loving relationships and our need to be loved. Single or married, we thank you that you care for us, We praise you for the gift of life and pray that you would help us to honour and glorify you in them. Father, we pray for our church staff families, our parish council and our wardens. We ask that you give them energy, refreshment and your spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may hold on to your truths and walk in step with the Spirit. May they serve you and serve you well as they serve the church. Help them to always show to others the grace you have given them. Thank you for your out uh, thank you for our church maintenance ministry and the time they have put in to lovingly care for our church. For the provision of the church, Father, and the people who serve us, we thank you. For our local ministry partners, the Anglican Deaconess Ministries, Moore College and Youth Works College, please bless them with gifted spiritual teachers that teach this sound doctrine of your word, that that they may be fruitful and trustful servants of Jesus. Help them to walk humbly, to love one another fiercely, and to live for the kingdom. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer this day. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Hey guys, our reading for today is from Titus chapter 2. So pause this and find that in your Bibles, and then we'll play and I'll get reading. Titus chapter 2 You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you.
3: Well hello, my name is Mark Greve. Thank you for tuning in for the sermon this week. I will be speaking on Titus 2 in our Titus series. So it's Titus chapter 2, from verse 1 to 15. Being a teacher, if there's one thing I'm familiar with, it's rules. Uh, part of my role as a year 19 is to ensure that students are following the school rules. Now, I wonder what rules you hated most at school, because I can tell you what rules are hated most today. Firstly, no phones. You know in our day if kids were standing in a circle looking guilty, it was probably a cigarette they were hiding? Well today it's a cell phone, they just can't seem to be without them for the period of the day. Secondly, no public displays of affections, or PDAs as they are known, which should be banned everywhere. There's certainly a no-go zone at school, especially in our current climate. Number three, tucking in your shirts. I know that boys have a notorious problem with getting their shirts tucked in. Uh, number four, the whole class being punished for one or two students' bad behaviour. No one likes that one, but as teachers, we still do it. Number five, a sweetless canteen. No chips, no chocolate, no fizzy drinks. And number six, general appearance. And being a private school, we are quite strict here, Uh, hair out of the eyes and off the shoulders and tied back for girls, the dress has to be below the knee, there's no makeup, fake tans, eyelash extensions, bracelets, necklaces, earrings, Uh, you know now how I spend most of my days trying to police that. But it's not just kids that have a problem with rules, we all do, almost daily I break the council rules of running my dog on the beach, not to mention the speed limit when I'm on my motorbike. So... When we get to a passage like this, God's word can feel like a bit of a slog. Oh great, I hear you say, more rules. And deep down, our sinful nature starts to rebel. Given that they're in the Bible, there can be also this sense that these are more guidelines than rules. I'm saved by faith, after all. So these are more helpful recommendations than anything too dogmatic. Well, you don't get that impression from this letter um, and from this chapter. Paul starts off by saying... You must teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. There's a sense of urgency and importance here. Furthermore, Paul tells Titus to encourage and rebuke with all authority. And in verse 14, he says that it's actually the reason for the redemption that Jesus has won for us. Uh, That is, purity. And so rather than being just some helpful guide for life, this behaviour and character development is at the very heart of the reason why God sent Jesus to redeem us. So let's have a look at these laws and who they are addressed to. Um, The old is firstly in verse uh, 2. Older men, be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Now, I've been watching a bit of The Simpsons lately, and it's fair to say that Homer is the complete opposite of what Paul is describing here. So we know what a bad example looks like, but what does a good example look like for older men? Well, they're not into excess. That's what the word temperate means. Uh, It means to show moderation and self-restraint, whether that's alcohol or work or money or gambling, TV and internet use. They prioritize what's important giving their time and their money and energy into people, into church, into their communities and their families. And so they gain the respect of those around them who are the recipient of their love. And they're wise too. Having been tested through the years, they have developed endurance and a sense of perspective. You won't see them running out and grabbing toilet paper like their life depends on it. No, there is a soundness and a dependability about their words and their actions. And I think if we are an older man in church, then Paul is saying we have a responsibility to lead our churches and our families and our society. We have much to offer our younger church congregants. In verse 3, likewise, older women are to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now reverent here means feeling or showing deep and solemn respect. The opposite would be bitterness and slanderous. And I think you can go one or two ways as you get older. You can grow in grace and love as you draw nearer to Christ and his teachings, or you can grow bitter and resentful. Uh, We probably can think of examples of both types. And like the older men, temperance is suggested as well, specifically with wine, which we know from chapter 1, verse 12, was a particular issue on Crete. So they have a role in mentoring the younger women, which we turn to now. In verse 4, we're told younger women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. Young women are told to focus their attention on the home and their relationships, not on themselves. Our movies and songs seem to depict young women nowadays as free from the restraints of family and responsibility. Social media profiles and independence and the freedom to follow the whims and desires of the heart are what is encouraged. I think it's interesting that the little word kindness finds its way in there too. I know the last couple of weeks at school I have had countless conversations and meetings with female students and their parents because of the horrible things these girls are saying to one another. It's been rightly said that the measure of a person is not in what they earn or how successful they might be, but how kind they are. It's a measuring stick of your maturity and character as a person. So young women value relationships over reputation, intimacy over image, and purity over pleasure. In verse 6, the young men are also told to be self-controlled. In verse 7, he says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good in your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. And I think the general instructions for Titus to show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech apply particularly to the young men, who out of all these groups are the most prone to being larrikins, uh, using inappropriate language, and lacking integrity particularly in their relationships. So if the young ladies are called to be kind, then the young men are called to be integrous. We are not to emulate our wayward sportsmen, and the masculine society that encourages stupidity and self-abandonment. Rather, we need young men who use their strength to build others up and to do good in this world. Men who have a passion and vision for a world that knows Christ. Men who can see beyond Minecraft and Fortnite and football and women and use their gifts for the kingdom. And once again, notice the importance that role models play for the younger people in the church. So if you're a young person in this, in our church and you should be seeking out the godly and the mature and the kind and the wise, they are a gold mine in any church. And then there's instructions for slaves and masters in verse 9. Obviously this is unfamiliar to our context and in some ways we can consider employer and employee relationships. But the point Paul is making here is that Obedience, integrity and trust will be so attractive that it will win people to the Lord. You think that attitude is hard as an employer, imagine what it's like as a slave who was treated like a piece of property, had no rights, no time off, no pay. It would have been revolutionary to start acting this way and showing this sort of work ethic. It would have turned heads and started conversations. It would have led to gospel conversations. So our work is primarily not for money. Or self-promotion but for the glory of God and to witness to his goodness. Now if you noticed as we read through that that the word self-control appears four times in this passage. So Titus is saying that a, a key aspect or the key aspect of godly behavior is self-control and I can see two applications for this. Firstly our movies and reality TV shows tell us to celebrate throwing caution to the wind and following after our own hearts, whatever it takes, or wherever it takes you. You see it around the middle of many films, where there's a big night out, usually involving sex and drugs, and the message it reinforces is that life is about letting go, following your heart, giving in to your desires, breaking the rules, anything but self-control. I just watched Frozen 2 on Netflix, and I'm reminded of the first movie where Elsa sings, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Or consider the Mardi Gras last month. Without exception, the event was promoted and then reviewed with unquestionable favour. Words such as freedom, equality, rights, love, inclusivity, acceptance abounded. When in reality, it's a celebration of a particular sexual orientation, namely that we should be free to pursue whatever sexual desire my heart wants. The one group that is not tolerated is the Christian calling for self-control, temperance and purity. Paul is saying to Titus that to be growing as a Christian is not to abandon all resolve and follow your every desire. It is to recognize that from within comes all evil desires and the heart is deceptive above all else, that we need to master our natural impulses and submit ourselves to God's ways. And the second way that self-control can be applied, I think, is is simply by not looking to my own needs and acting in accordance with my own desires, but thinking of others. Our empty supermarket shelves are testament that many people are not showing much self-control at this time. We've had our Prime Minister, among others, getting on TV and rebuking the nation like an angry dad, and rightly so. But it's at precisely these times of crisis that character is shown. So anyone can be kind and caring and generous when all their needs are being met, and they have not a worry in the world. But when there is trouble and a crisis and potential hardships, that's when people's true nature is seen. The health of any society is judged on how well they look after the most vulnerable. And so Paul is telling us to show self-control for the sake of your society, for the sake of your family, and particularly as it's a mark of someone who trusts in God. So how do we do that? Well, verse 11 to 15 give us the answer, and it can come down to one word, grace. Have a look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I want to break this into two sections, uh, the no of grace and the yes of grace. So saying no, firstly, Uh, when God describes self-control, he doesn't downplay the agony of it. The word for renounce in 2.12 is a severe word. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So when we renounce ungodliness, we take something that was once precious to us, And we put it to death. Augustine, the great 4th century theologian, had this struggle. He was a prolific womanizer, but the truth of the gospel had come into his heart. And at one stage in his struggle between following Christ or following the flesh, he cried out, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Uh, Well, he was converted, and he became one of the great exponents of grace in his time. Or consider C.S. Lewis, uh, the greatest Christian mind of the 20th century. He struggled for 15 years, at one point declaring that he was the most reluctant convert in all of Britain. Now these are honest testimonies. I think sometimes we feel like there's something wrong with us. We hear testimonies of people leaving their worldly passions and following Christ blissfully. But the reality is, when we begin to resist sin, a battle takes place in our lives. Remember the words God gave to Cain as he wrestled with the desire to harm Abel? He said, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. He describes sin like a wild animal, ready to pounce and devour as soon as we open that door. Sin is a predator, and predators want to kill. They are dangerous. The problem is that we are all too often don't view sin that way. We don't realize a predator awaits at the door of temptation. For many, the wild animal is nothing more than a pussycat. We carry it around with us. We think it's our companion, our friend. It might even be good for us. And the more we accommodate the sin, the more we feed the beast. It gets harder to resist. So what we need to do is starve the beast. And how do we get there? Well, notice that the no is only half how grace trains us. The grace of God also trains us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, the rest of verse 12. And I think that's important to realise that Christians are not known simply for what they won't do, but they are known for being passionate about what is right. When we see God's will for us and recognise the joy that comes through serving others and the many ways we can use our gifts to bring redemption to the world, then we can be consumed with a passion for good. I like this quote. It says the no of self-control becomes possible only as the yes of holiness becomes beautiful. Christianity says no to pornography because purity, a barren rule for so long, has begun to burst with life. We say no to gossip because love for neighbour, an annoying ought until now, has finally found a home in our heart. We say no to the love of money because generosity a mere nuisance to us before, has breached the walls of selfishness. We say no to sin, because Jesus, a dim religious figure for so long, has lit up with startling beauty. Well, let me illustrate this truth with a story from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there is a story of a mysterious island that was located in the middle of the sea, an island on which many brave Greek sailors tragically lost their lives. It was inhabited by evil, bloodthirsty monsters called sirens. The way that the sirens used to kill people is that they would disguise themselves as beautiful young women, and then as ships went sailing past, they would stand on the shore of the island, and the sirens would begin to sing. The song was so overwhelmingly seductive that the sailors couldn't resist. They would be drawn to the island and they would crash against the rocks and die in one old myth there is a guy named ulysses and he is out on an adventure and knows he has to sail past the island of the sirens he wants to hear the song so he comes up with a plan the men are told to plug their ears with wax so they can't hear and he tells them to tie him as firmly as they can to the mask he orders his men to row straight past the island And whatever I say to you, whatever you do, don't set me free. And as they go past, Ulysses looks over and he sees these women. And it takes his breath away. Then they begin to sing to him the most amazing, compelling song. His heart almost stops and he tells his men to turn to the island, but they can't hear him. He's pushing against the rope and he's banging his head and he's screaming at his men to turn. But no matter. They are good Greek sailors. They know his early advice. Anyways, their ears are blocked, and they keep on going. Finally, out of sight of the island, they untie their captain, who is bruised and bleeding. He's alive, but and he's resisted the song, but he's not a happy man. Ulysses' strategy for resisting the sirens is similar to the way many of us try to live for Christ. We are drawn to sin. We have no willpower to resist, and so we struggle and fight and bang our heads. We tie ourselves up, and we do all we can to resist. We redouble our efforts in religion and ritual, but continue to feel like we are always fighting a losing battle. The siren song is just too compelling. Well, the gospel changes us in another way. See, in Greek mythology, there's another story of a man named Jason and the Argenauts who also escaped the songs of the sirens, but he does it in a completely different way. Instead of waxing the ears and being tied to the mask, he turns to his friend Orpheus. Orpheus is the best musician in the whole land, and Jason tells him to play the lyre with all his heart when they are passing the island. He does it, and the song is so amazing, it's so beautiful, it fills the ears and thoughts and hearts of the men. It captivates their soul so that they go straight past the island, and even though the sirens sing at the top of their voice, the sailors don't even care the music of the siren, has no power over their hearts because they've found a better song. That is the power of grace. A more beautiful tune than that of sin has captured your heart and now compels you to love and follow God and not sin anymore. See, what is the remedy for sinfulness? How do I become more faithful to God? How can I be self-controlled and pure? We need to fall in love with Jesus. How do I do that? Well, look how Paul does it. Almost every time he refers to Jesus in Scripture, he can't help but run away with the thoughts of what Jesus has done for him. He does it again here in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul meditates on what Jesus has done for him. And it is that love that compels him to live the life of obedience and self-control and purity. So the answer to loving God more and making him the most compelling song in your life is worship. It's to taste and see that the Lord is good it's to long for his presence, it's to soak in his goodness, and as you do, you will experience the peace and the beauty and the power of that most all-surpassing song that nothing in this world will be able to take away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you so care for us, that you have given us a way of following you that brings you glory and is what is best for us. I pray that we would look upon your law with love and desire, not with resentment or bitterness, that we may seek to apply it into our lives, knowing that your grace has saved us and that you have given us that most beautiful song to fill our hearts and our lives. Make us obedient for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.
0: That brings us nearly to the end of our time together. If you're with others who've been listening, can I encourage you to take a moment and talk about what you've heard? Share something that's encouraged or challenged you. Head to our Facebook page, and there you'll see some uh, links to songs and a video of a couple of our ladies sharing about what Jesus means to them. Very encouraging. While you're there, why don't you add a comment, uh, get involved, share. Uh, Simply being present online is encouraging to others. And finally, uh, our connect groups. Many are still meeting. Some are meeting online already. Can I encourage you, if you're not part of a connect group already, it would be great to join one. Uh, Get in touch with me uh, if you'd like to online uh, or on my mobile Uh, And let me close with the words that Paul uses to finish this little book of Titus where he simply says, Grace be with you all.